All right, would you open up your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 2? Daniel chapter 2, of course. And we're going to be looking at verses 36 to 40, only five verses this morning. Five verses, but boy, we're going to cover a lot of history, a lot of time in history, all the way from Babylon to Rome in five verses. Can you imagine doing that? <laughs> God can do anything, can he? All right, let's bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, please. Father, we do thank you that um, we are able to assemble this morning. We have this beautiful sunny day. Thank you for the, the spring day we had yesterday. Um, but we do also thank you for the snow and the ice because it is just another reminder of, of the beauty of your creation. Thank you that you are indeed sovereign in the affairs of men and that you are by far, of course, superior to all the pagan gods of man's creation, man's imagination. And as we look at this colossus that you gave to King Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, and we see the downward movement on the image from the head of gold down to the feet and toes of iron mixed with brittle clay, the lesson to us is that the longer man has attempted to rule this earth apart from you, without you, the more degenerate that rule has become. And the more that man has tried to rule this earth apart from you, the more his rule is characterized by, by evil and immorality and, and just uh, degeneracy in every way, and more by militarism. Evil men have definitely waxed worse and worse. So thank you for the lessons that you're teaching us uh, through this study, mostly about your sovereignty, that you do indeed know the end from the beginning and that you are able to give ahead of time the end. And we know how everything will one day turn out when your son returns to this earth and sets up his kingdom and how we long for that time when this earth will be ruled by the Prince of Peace, there truly will be peace, there will be justice, there will be righteousness. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And now, <clears throat> just go ahead of us and help us all to think clearly. Um, and may you be glorified in everything that is said and done and thought here this morning. For we do pray in the blessed name of our Savior. Amen. With this lesson, which I've entitled Dream Interpreted Part 1, next week will be Part 2, subtitled For Now Past, because from where we are in history, these are over with, For Now Past Gentile Kingdoms. With this lesson, we're going to begin to look at the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's God-given dream of Daniel chapter 2. And that interpretation in its entirety is found in verses 36 all the way to 45, but that's too much for me to cover in one hour. You know that, right? <laughs> so we're going to be dividing those verses into three sections. This morning, we're going to look, as I said, at four now past Gentile kingdoms in verses 36 to 40. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at one more yet future, yet future, not uh, past, but yet future Gentile kingdom, and that will be the kingdom of the toes, the feet and the toes, 
the kingdom of the Antichrist, we could call it, or the revived Roman Empire, whatever that's going to consist of. And then we're going to look at one yet future godly kingdom. So today we're going to look at four kingdoms, past, next week two future kingdoms, one Gentile and ungodly, and one very, very godly, because it will be established by God himself the Son of God. Well, like his God, Daniel did everything decently and in order. We see that in how he began with the dream. He gave him the account of the dream, and then he transitioned to announce to the king that he was going to give the interpretation. So first he gave the dream. We looked at that last time in verses 31 to 35, and now he announces in verse 36 that he is going to transition to the interpretation. He says in verse 36 to the king, this is the dream that I just gave you, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Now, by the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar said absolutely nothing to interrupt Daniel during the course of his narration of the dream, when he told the king what he dreamt, that he dreamt of that giant, you know, colossus, and the head was gold, breast, arm, silver, etc., etc. The king never interrupted him, did he? He never said, nah, that's not what I dreamt. You got it wrong. The head was not gold, it was plastic. <laughs> but, um, and he didn't even interrupt him when he told him in verse 36 that he's about to transition to the interpretation. So by that, by the king's silence, we know that Daniel's account of the dream was accurate. The king didn't say a word of contradiction. He didn't say a word of correction. And his silence speaks volumes, doesn't it? Because it tells us he knew that now what he was about to hear was going to be the true interpretation of the dream because the dream itself had been right on the mark, right on the money. That was exactly what he had dreamed. Now, Bible commentators have drawn various conclusions about Daniel's use of that little pronoun, we. You cannot believe how many pages are spent on that little pronoun, we, in verse 36, where Daniel said, this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Some have thought that perhaps, when he said we, perhaps he shared the dream Remember, God gave him the dream that he got together with his companions, Ananiah, Hazariah, and Mishael, and they prayed that God would give him the dream so they wouldn't be cut up in little pieces and their houses made into dunghill. So they gathered together, they prayed probably all night, and then God gave him the dream, the exact dream Nebuchadnezzar had had, and he probably, then they had a, um, a praise session, um, but he probably, don't you think, shared the dream with his three friends? And maybe even gave them the interpretation of it, because he had the gift of interpretation. I don't know, but he probably did share that with his friends. But the suggestion is that then his three friends went with him and Arioch. Who was Arioch? He was the one that actually was going to have to cut everybody in little pieces. He was the king's executioner. That the three friends went with Daniel before the king. But the only question I have about that is, if they were there with Daniel before the king, then why aren't they mentioned at all? as being there. Um, others have said that Daniel was simply giving proper credit to who? To God, which we know he had already done, um, that he was giving credit to God because without God, he would never have known the dream, much less the interpretation, so that the we is really God in him. 
And others have said, well, he's just simply being his humble self, avoiding the use of the pronoun I. You know, that sounds more egotistical. I will give you the interpretation, so he just used we. I think it's probably both. You know, he's giving credit to God, and he was being his usual humble self. Now, I've just answered one of your homework questions for you. All right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What number was that? <laughs> All right, now each downward section of this colossus, this image, each downward section, you know, starting with the head and going down, prophetically pictures, we know this, the successive Gentile empires, beginning with Babylon, that directly affected what nation? Exactly, the nation of Israel during the time when God's glory, his Shekinah glory, his presence was no longer with her. We're going to talk about that next week, the coming and the going of God's Shekinah glory. But the, the whole image pictures the Gentile empires that would have um, dominion over Israel when she basically had lost her sovereignty, her independence. These were the kingdoms that God used to shape Israel after her own independence was removed. And why was her independence removed from her? Why did she no longer have sovereignty as a, as a nation? Well, it was all her own fault. It was due to her failure to um, fulfill her appoint, appointed role as his witnesses to this world. She was to be Jehovah's Witnesses to this world, right? Now, obviously, when you think about it, there have been other Gentile nations and kingdoms in, on earth since 2,600 years ago when Daniel gave the interpretation of this dream, right? I mean, what was going on in Australia <laughs> and India and China and South America and North America? I mean, there were other kingdoms other than these four. So have you ever wondered, well, why, why didn't the image include them? Well, it's because those places didn't directly affect the nation of Israel. They didn't have dominion, direct dominion over Israel. But Israel did become subjected to Babylon. Obviously, she was in Babylon as captive. Um, she was subjected to the Medo-Persian Empire. Think of Esther and Haman and all that, and, and Greece, and then Rome. So that's why there aren't other nations mentioned in this, in this dream. The special purpose of the prophecies of Daniel was to show the Lord's dealings with his own people, the Jews, not with mankind as a whole. That's not the purpose of this dream. The, the four or five kingdoms of men, and I'm going to say four or five because the last empire of Rome represented by the legs of iron um, some just say that the feet and toes are the continuation of, that, of Rome in a revived form. So they say there's four empires, four kingdoms represented on the statue. And some say that the feet and toes are actually a fifth. I'm saying it's a fifth because it's going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist. And, and so I'm saying a fifth. But don't get all hung up on it. If you read some commentators that say four kingdoms and you see others that say five. We, if we want to, we could say four and a half. I don't care. I'll compromise on that one. Um, but for my purposes, I'm saying five kingdoms. Um, but the kingdoms of men in Nebuchadnezzar's dream are those that would exercise authority over Israel until the time of Christ's return. 
when she will then receive her sovereignty back. Actually, she'll be under him, but that's a good thing. So virtually unseen also in this, not only do we not have any record of other nations that were going on in the world um, that didn't have any direct correlation with Israel, but something else is not seen in this dream or in any of Daniel's other prophecies, and for that matter, in any Old Testament prophecies. There's something else virtually unseen because it was a mystery not revealed until the New Testament. And what is that? It's a period of time known as the church age. From the birth of the church on Pentecost to the removal of the church on, at the rapture. That is a parenthetical period of time known as the church age. And it is not seen on this image. I say that, there's, that we could draw an ankle bracelet on the guy's legs there if you want to. <laughs> a little ankle bracelet right down there and you can write an arrow and say church age <laughs> it's a gap of time which we know has now been well over well not well over but roughly some 2,000 years that little ankle, ankle bracelet alright so that's not seen you know the perfect New Testament complement to the book of Daniel is the book of what Revelation they're both um, eschatological books, meaning that they both talk about the end times, they complement one another because together, you take them together, they give us this whole sweep of history. Daniel gives us the future in the first four world empires from his time until Israel is out of the picture. All right, so from his time, he lived during the Babylonian captivity. Of course, he doesn't talk about empires that are now over with. He goes from his time. He didn't talk about Egypt and Assyria. But starting from Babylon, he gives, you know, because God gave it to him in the dream and everything, um, the vision of history from Babylon until Rome was in power when Israel lost her sovereignty in 70 AD, right? Because Rome is the one who destroyed the temple and, and Jerusalem, and then the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. So he gives us that history. But it stops basically with the church. So where do we find out the history of the church? We turn to the book of Revelation, don't we? The apostle John <clears throat> was instructed by the resurrected Lord Jesus, the glorified Christ to pick up his pen and write seven letters to seven specific churches and amazingly those were literal churches in Asia Minor but they also presented an incredible prophecy of the church age have you ever if you have you ever studied the seven churches if you haven't you are in for a treat because it starts with the the early church the apostolic church of Ephesus you know, on fire for the Lord, and it goes all the way to where we are today. If the church was an image, Ephesus would be the head of gold, and where would we be? We'd be the feet of clay. We're in the Laodicean. We're in the end of that image of the church, basically. The church is a body, too, isn't it? Christ is the head, not Ephesus. Right, Christ is the head. Ephesus would have to be the silver chest and arms. Um, anyway, but we're at the, the bottom. Laodicea is the lukewarm church. Isn't that depressing? 
lukewarm church. There's so many in Christendom who are lukewarm today. Uh, but they need to study Revelation 2 and 3 and get on fire because it's so exciting how it gives us the whole panorama of the church age. And then when we have that, then we go back to both books. We take both books, Daniel and Revelation. They join together in their prophetic coverage of the last seven years when Israel will be in the fiery furnace, getting totally prepared to accept her Messiah when he returns. They give us together, Daniel and Revelation, the, um, the focus is on Israel because the church has been removed, and we will see Israel as she suffers through the oppression of that fifth and final kingdom that will consist of ten parts represented by the ten toes, and later on, ten horns, which we find out are ten kings. And out of those ten horns, which are ten kings, arises what? A little horn, another king, an eleventh king, and he is the Antichrist. And uh, that's going to be the worst godless kingdom that this earth has ever seen. But it will all be destroyed when the Lord returns at uncut stone and demolishes the whole thing and sets up his everlasting kingdom of righteousness. So there we have the whole sweep of history, right? In those two books. So do you know where you're going? Do you know where, where we're going in history? Yes, you do, because if you know this book, you don't have to fumble around like the rest of the world does. Furthermore, we do need to remember as we consider the interpretation of the image that although the various kingdoms represented by it were different, you know, Babylon was different than Medo-Persia, etc., yet the image itself corporately as a whole represents what? The whole godless world system apart from God that began, where did it begin? Where did it all start? Babel, yeah, with the Tower of Babel, man trying to reach God on his, his own way. Um, that represents the whole world system. It's just, you know, just given to us under different phases of it, different types of governments. But the image is one, even though the parts of it consist of different metals on different body parts. And this is, you know, we see this, I just gave you an example of the church. The church is one body, right? Doesn't matter when people in the church age lived, even if they lived 2,000 years ago in that first phase of Ephesus, or like us today, you know, in the last stage, the seventh stage of Laodicea, we're all one body, right? So you see the, the correlation there. So far, the time element of the dream, so far meaning to where we are today, the time element of this dream has extended some 2,600 years. It was 2,600 years ago that Daniel wrote this book. Some of the interpretation of this dream is now past history. The four kingdoms that we're going to be discussing today, they're, they're over with. They're, they've been confirmed. He was right on the mark. God was. And it's worth noting that there is only one kingdom that is actually named in Daniel's interpretation, um, and that is Babylon. He doesn't actually say that the head of gold is Babylon. He says, you, king, are the head of gold. But back in ancient times in the east, a king and his kingdom were synonymous. So when he said, you are the head of gold, he was basically saying, you and your kingdom, Babylon. But that's the only kingdom that is actually named for us. Um, but... Further chapters in the book of Daniel, such as chapter 7 and chapter 8. In chapter 8, I think it's verses 20 and 21, 
um, actually do confirm that the second kingdom was Medo-Persia and the third kingdom was Greece. So, okay, is it chapter 8, verses 20 and 21? Um, and then history itself, you know, so further chapters in the book, history, have confirmed to us the identities of the other now past kingdoms as being Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And Bible-believing students are on almost unanimously agreed on this identification of these four now past Gentile nations as being Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and legs Rome. Okay? So everybody stand up. We're going to do a little exercise. Stand up. You know I was going to do this, huh? <laughs> I did it yesterday, and they seemed to like it. I can't sing worth a toot, but how's that song go again now? Head and shoulders, knees and toes. Okay, we're going to do that song, except we're going to go Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, Greece and Rome. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, Greece and Rome. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome and Greece. <laughs> How about this one? Gold and silver, brass and iron and... I lost the tune. Iron and clay. Wait, let's try that again. Gold, silver, brass, iron, iron and clay. I can't do it. I can't do the tune. I can't do the tune. <laughs> anyway, you get it. You can practice that with your kids or your husband or whatever. All right. <laughs> I just did that to wake you up. <clears throat> but <clears throat> this is called, this consensus of those four now past Gentile nations, is called the conventional interpretation. The conventional interpretation. Um, and it begins by saying that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, which was from 625 to 539 B.C. That is a fact, okay? It cannot be disputed because Daniel said so. He said, you are the head of gold, so nobody can argue with that. And then the interpretation goes on to declare that the breast and arms of silver are the Medo-Persian Empire and that the belly and the thighs of brass are the Greek Empire, which is also confirmed <clears throat> by Daniel in chapter 8, and the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire. Okay, now I have not talked about the higher critics of the book of Daniel for a long time. Remember those guys? We talked about them a lot in the beginning in our introduction to the book, but they definitely pop up again here with this conventional interpretation of those four now past kingdoms. Their basic problem with the conventional interpretation, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, their big problem is that the legs of iron, we say, represent the Roman Empire. Because if the legs of iron do indeed represent the Roman Empire, it would mean that even an early second century Daniel, you know, the forger Daniel, not the real Daniel who wrote the book in the sixth century BC, but their forgery Daniel, who they say didn't write the book until the second century BC and merely looked back on history and wrote about it, you know, it wasn't prophetic at all, it was just looking back, he was basically a historian. 
Well, their problem is that if the legs of iron are Rome, even their second century forgery Daniel could not have predicted Rome succeeding the Grecian Empire and the extent of that empire, which is pictured by the length of the legs. So what they have to do, what these higher critics have to do to avoid um, admitting that Daniel does indeed present true prophecy, which only an omniscient God could deliver to him, they say that the four empires of the image are Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. Get it? They have to split the Medo-Persian Empire because there are definitely four kingdoms represented on that image. So they're forced to split the Medo-Persian Empire into two separate kingdoms. However, the problem with these critics' supposed solution to their dilemma is that Media, the Medes, as a distinct empire, did not conquer Babylon. Slight problem. And history knows it. Everybody knows it. The Medes did not alone conquer Babylon. So your little higher critics have to say, they have to admit that their forgery Daniel was a very bad historian. <laughs> I mean, isn't it crazy? Um, <clears throat> their disbelief in the true 6th century Daniel also, and we're going to see this as we go through and explain about what the metals, how they signify each of those different empires so perfectly, and the body parts even do, um, it messes up, seriously messes up God's perfect symbolism for the, those corresponding metals and um, body parts. So they mess up the whole statue. You know, once they get past the head of gold, they mess up the whole thing that God gave. Well, before continuing, I do want to point out, because this is important to mention, that this conventional interpretation, the one that I'm teaching, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome, goes all the way back to the apostolic church. You've got all the church fathers, like Origen, Eusebius, Hippolytus, uh, Arrhenius. Now, Arrhenius lived in the first century A.D., Okay, he sat at the feet, he was a student, a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna who was martyred for his Christian faith in 156 AD. He, Polycarp, had spent time with the apostle John in Ephesus. He also spent time with Philip. Remember Acts chapter 7 and the first seven deacons? One of them was Stephen and another one was Philip. He spent time with John and with Philip. And therefore, and they, all these guys I just mentioned, all taught the conventional interpretation. So it does go all the way back to the apostolic church. And the bottom line to me is that God is sovereign. Do you have a big problem with God being able to tell the future? I sure don't. I don't know what these critics, I don't know what their problem is. You know, why they even call themselves Christians, and they do, um, if they don't believe that God can know the future. But he does. He knows the end from the beginning, and he certainly has the ability, and he certainly has the right to reveal the future to whoever he chooses to reveal it to. 
And when he gave the dream, first of all, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and then again, he gave it in a night vision to Daniel, Persia was simply a small vassal state of Babylon. Babylon was the big empire, and Persia was just a little part of it. And when he gave the dream to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the Greeks, my ancestors, were just a group of fighting um, little tribes warring with each other. And Rome was merely a village far from Babylon. It was a little village on the Tiber River. You see, no human being could have seen what the Lord God was going to do with those various Gentile groups in the future, right? Right. So let's now look at four past Gentile kingdoms beginning with Babylon. He says the most about Babylon here, and that's in verses 36 to 38. Daniel is standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Did you notice that Daniel was inspired to address King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37 as a king of kings? Interesting, isn't it? Do you know Ezekiel called Nebuchadnezzar? Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel, and he also gave that title to King Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 26.7, a king of kings. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch, total control, a despot, a dictator. He was above every other king of his time and of the times that followed. It is not coincidence that the times of the Gentiles, remember this whole statue pictures the times of the Gentiles when Israel's going to be trodden down by Gentile kingdoms? It's not coincidence that this whole time begins with a king, a king of kings, and it ends with what? The, the king of kings, all in capital letters in Revelation 19, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not coincidence, is it? One thing Daniel made sure to say to Nebuchadnezzar was that the God of heaven gave him his reign. The king's power was a gift from God himself. And with that gift, which is true of every ruler of every nation that has ever existed, with that gift came uh, a responsibility. Daniel's unspoken warning to the king was that he would be accountable to God for how he ruled. And we will find when we get to both the third chapter and the fourth chapter of Daniel, Daniel we're going to find that Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, the third chapter is 20 years later. There's a, there's a skip of 20 years between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But we will find that Nebuchadnezzar attempted to oppose this idea of the sovereignty of God. But he learned, like everybody will one day learn, Fortunately, he learned while he was still alive in this earth, he learned the hard way that God, it was indeed God 
who had set him up in his position as absolute monarch of the first kingdom of the times of the Gentiles. And it was God who could and who did for a while take him down from that throne. He learned the hard way. Isn't it always better to learn things the, the easy way than hard? All right, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, was the head of gold. The Neo-Babylonian Empire was Nebuchadnezzar. Basically, it was him. It only lasted a few years after he died. You know, his grandson, Belshazzar, that's when it was conquered that night by the uh, Medo-Persians, the night of the handwriting on the wall. So it was really all about Nebuchadnezzar. He brought it into being, which, you know, of course, God, he brought it into, into being because God allowed him to bring it into being. And, and it only lasted a little over 70 years. What was the whole purpose for the Babylonian Empire? to teach Israel a lesson, right? Because they were there for 70 years. So it was really, God set it up for the purpose of teaching his people a lesson, especially about idol worship. But he was an absolute monarch. He was the head of the entire Babylonian world system. Um, and God expressly gave the right to him to rule the whole world. Now, Nebuchadnezzar never did rule all the beasts of the earth and all the men and all the fowls, like it said there, right? But he, as the head of the whole times of the Gentiles, he was given that right. None of the other kings ever gained the whole world, but there is going to be one who will rule over just for a little short time. Um, and he will be the one at the feet of it. But remember, it's a whole. So when he says you're going to have the right, he's really speaking of the whole image. You get it? And the one who will rule the world for, what, three and a half years? And even then he's going to have some problems, but that will be, of course, the Antichrist. Um, in fact, the truth of the matter is that Babylon was one of the smallest of the world empires of this image prophecy. Well, it was. It was the smallest. Uh, all right, so, so why did God, now let's move on to the gold. Why did God choose gold as the metallic symbol of Babylon in this dream? Well, for one thing, and I think we, you remember we learned this when we talked about the city itself of Babylon back in another lesson. Babylon, um, just if, probably if you saw the city from a distance, it looked like a city of gold because Nebuchadnezzar was obsessed with gold. That was his metal. He loved gold. <laughs> How many of you can identify? <laughs> he made Babylon into a city literally filled with gold. Um, one of the historians says that there was more than 22 tons of gold just found in the temples to the gods and goddesses that, of course, were everywhere all over the city. Nebuchadnezzar used gold lavishly to decorate his own palace and public buildings. And the statue of his favorite god, remember his favorite god was Mar, remember Marduk? Marduk. Um, his, the statue of that god was made of solid, fine gold. And Marduk sat on a golden chair, solid gold. And he had a golden footstool, which is kind of like an ottoman, in front of him. And the entire exter exterior surface of the chamber to Marduk was overlaid with gold. And outside there stood a big golden altar. Uh, and then we learn, when we do get to chapter 3, verse 1, we learn that 20 years later, Nebuchadnezzar is still thinking about this dream. Do you know that? 20 years later, he can't get this dream out of his head. And he can't get out of his head the fact that 
Daniel said to him, you are the head of gold. But instead of wanting to be just the head, he wants to be the whole thing. So he builds this giant image, just like in his dream. But he makes the whole thing of what? The whole thing of gold. It's a little bit of an ego problem. So, hmm. And he wants the whole, his, everybody in his kingdom to bow down to it. So gold. Gold is very, there would be no other metal more appropriate to symbolize Babylon than gold. Um, all right. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar, we will find that there is no monarch actually mentioned. The sequent, sequence of the, of the image actually sort of passes from a king to the kingdoms. He was really the only uh, united, his was the only united monarchy. You know, what he said was it. That was law. And he could even break his own laws, which the others will see couldn't. All right, so let's move down to the Medo-Persian Empire, which, by the way, is also represented, and I forgot to tell you this about um, Babylon, but in chapter 7, Babylon is also represented in Daniel's dream by a lion with wings. Now, the one we're going to move to, Medo-Persia, in chapter 7, is also pictured as a bear, a bear who is raised up on one side. One side of him is higher than the other. And Medo-Persia is represented or pictured in chapter 8 as a ram that has one horn higher than the other. So they speculate because the bear, Medo-Persia, is up on one side. One side is higher. The ram has one horn higher that the, um, the breast and the arms of silver, that probably one arm, probably the right arm, might have been a little higher. Okay, what does that picture? It pictures that the Persians were a little bit more powerful than the Medes, okay, in this joint kingdom. So let's look at the Medo-Persian Empire, the breast and arms of silver, just the very first part of verse 39, where Daniel says, And after thee, after thee, king, and your Babylonian kingdom, shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. That's all he says. That's all he says. He doesn't even tell us what it's made of, but we learned that back in, what is it, verse 32, that the second kingdom would be represented by the arms of silver, the breast and the arms of silver. Um, now, of course, the two arms represent, the breast represents the fact that it was one empire, one kingdom, right? But it consisted of two parts and probably the right arm, like I said, was a little higher because the Persians were a little more powerful. The only thing really he says here in his interpretation to the king is that this second empire is going to be inferior to, to Nebuchadnezzar's. Um, and that's true because the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire did not exercise the same auto, um, autocratic power as the Babylonian monarch. A Persian king, now we learn this in um, the book of Esther, a Persian king could write a law, but if he changed his mind, he did not have the authority to undo his own law, did he? Remember how King Ahasuerus, the husband of Esther, kind of got uh, persuaded because of 10,000 talents of silver to make an edict that all the Jewish people would be killed on a certain day, every Jewish person in his kingdom? And then when he found out his own beautiful wife was Jewish and Mordecai, who he had come to respect, was Jewish, 
He could not undo his own edict. So they see, now Nebuchadnezzar would have had no problem. He didn't. When he gave the decree to have every wise man chopped into pieces, when Daniel gave him the dream, he ended that decree, didn't he? So they, didn't, they were inferior as far as the rulers were concerned. Um, so each new kingdom further restricted the role of the central leader. Only Nebuchadnezzar was a king of kings. Um, of course, God set up all of these kingdoms and their leaders, but the rulers of the next kingdom were bound by the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And the Greek empire, it consisted of city-states, a whole bunch of little city-states that were always warring with each other, you know, the Carthaginians against the Spartans and all, you know, it was just a mess. Um, and they were unable to maintain a unified kingdom. Now, Alexander the Great, he had the kingdom unified there for a while, 13 years is all, but when he died, it split and went to four generals. And the Roman Empire didn't even have kings until later. It had Caesars, but even their power was restricted by the, by the hands of the, the Senate, the Roman Senate and the elite patrician class. So a Caesar didn't have as much power as you might think. Well, the dream reveals the course of world history. You didn't know when you came to Bible study you'd actually be in a history class, did you? <laughs> but the dream reveals the course of world history from autocratic Babylon, absolute despotic monarchy ruled by the iron hand of Nebuchadnezzar, to oligarchic Medo-Persia, meaning the kings were limited by the power of decree, and rule was really vested in a dominant class, to militaristic, militaristic aristocracy, that's a mouthful, uh, which was what really Greece was, because the aristocratic, you know, the elite of, of Greece really voted their, their kings. And they voted them always from the military. So they would pick generals to be their kings. All right. And then it went from, from that down to um, Rome. Ancient Rome was imperialistic. How did they uh, conquer the world? They colonized and they used brute force, military force. That's called imperialism. And then the last kingdom, believe it or not, the revived Roman Empire of the feet and the toes is not going to be, like you think, a monarchy or an oligarchy or a, a militaristic, aristocratic whatever, or a, what's the name? imperialism. It's going to be a democracy of all things. A democracy. Did you know that those ten horns, those ten kings, those ten nations, or ten groups of the world, did you know right now the world is divided into ten parts? Interesting. That they're going to vote in to power the Antichrist? It's going to be a democracy. Hmm, interesting. So the central power of the leadership, may it did. It would grow inferior with each succeeding Gentile empire, but they were not going to be inferior in their size because we know that Medo-Persia covered more territory land than did Babylon and Greece covered a larger area than did Medo-Persia and Rome covered more territory than ever did Greece. So not inferior 
as far as size is concerned. But did you know that size does not guarantee greatness in God's sight? It doesn't. I mean, a lot of people in this world will maybe judge something by its size, like even a church, a mega church, and they'll say, oh, that must be a great church. That must be a, you know, really spiritual church just based on its size. But God, you know, doesn't judge by quantity, but by quality, right? So Medo-Persia was inferior in the sight of God uh, to Babylon, and it was inferior in its power, in its unity, in its wealth, and in its splendor. Now, of the four now past kingdoms of the great image, the second one contains the least amount of information. Really doesn't tell us much of anything about it here, does it? We get a little more information in later chapters, but when Daniel is actually talking, direct, you know, he didn't write the book until Nebuchadnezzar was dead, but here he's directly talking to the king and interpreting his dream. So all he tells the king, stroking his ego a little bit, is that the next kingdom, the one that's going to replace you, is going to be inferior to you. Why do you think he did that? I think he did it because otherwise King Nebuchadnezzar might have been totally obsessed with looking for characteristics that matched what Daniel might have told him about the kingdom that would replace him. So all he basically tells him is that it's going to be inferior and that it's represented by silver. Now, historically, um, we have discovered that, indeed, the Medo-Persian Empire was associated with silver. They developed a vast taxation system that required all their subjects, all the people they conquered, to pay their taxes with, what do you think? Silver, not gold, not iron, not clay, but silver. Um, the coffers of the empire were filled with tons and tons of silver. Xerxes I, who inherited the great silver fortune that was collected by his father Darius, um, used silver actually to finance his war against the Greeks when Alexander the Great came on. And uh, the Medo-Persian Empire needed money to to get their troops, you know, they used silver to finance their war against the Greeks. So silver couldn't have been more perfect for Medo-Persia than, you know, just couldn't be more perfect. It was established in 539 BC, actually the night of the handwriting on the wall, the Medo-Persian army marched into the city of Babylon and conquered them that very night when Belshazzar was having his, his orgy banquet. Um, it was established under Cyrus the Great, who was actually predicted a hundred years earlier by name through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had said that there would, can you imagine, he wasn't even born. Cyrus wasn't even born, and Isaiah said that there would be this man named Cyrus who would actually let the Jewish people leave Babylon, and he was the one who did. Um, but the Medo-Persian Empire lasted about 200 years. Remember last time we talked about the length of most nations is roughly around 200 years. That's how long it lasts. Territorially, it spanned three continents. It didn't fill those continents, but it did, um, it did exist in Asia and in Africa and in Europe. Some 50 million people lived under the authority of the Medo-Persians, which at that time was roughly 44% of the world's population. And it was eventually conquered by who? Who, who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire? Alexander the Great, the Greek. So let's look at the last part of verse 39, the Greek 
empire, which is represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. As he says, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now this Greek empire is also symbolized in chapter 7 by that leopard who's supposed to have four heads <laughs> and four wings. And in chapter 8, the Greek empire is pictured by a he-goat. A he-goat. There he is. I drew a picture of him. And he has four horns. Four heads on the leopard and four horns on the he-goat. And that's all very symbolic. Well, the Greek empire really came about because of the military conquest of one man, Alexander the Great. Now, the Great was not his last name. He appointed that name for himself. They always had ego problems, didn't they, all these guys? Alexander the Great was born in 356 B.C. His father was King Philip II of Macedon. And his father was assassinated in 336 B.C. when Alexander was only about 19 or 20 years of age. So he inherited his father's throne, and he immediately began a military campaign to accomplish his father's expansionist plans. His conquests included, here's what Alexander was able to take over territory-wise, the whole Medo-Persian Empire, all right, Syria, Phoenicia, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Judea. What's Judea? Israel, all right. The horizontal boundary of his empire extended all the way from Greece to the border of India. That's 14,000 miles, and he did that in only 13 years. He started when he was roughly 20, and he died when he was 33. So he conquered 14,000 miles in 13 years. That's why the leopard has wings, to show how swiftly he would conquer. Alexander never lost a battle, even though oftentimes his army was, was outnumbered. He never lost a battle. He is considered to be one of the most successful military commanders in history, in all of history. Daniel said that the third kingdom would bear rule over all the earth. You see that? Now that speaks of the known earth at that time, but the phrase is very interesting in light of the territory that Alexander did cover and the fact that he commanded all his subjects to refer to him as not only Alexander the Great, but they were to call him Alexander the King of all the earth. <laughs> but God didn't really call him a king of kings, did he? Well, it's again perfect, perfect representation that the image's body parts for Greece um, descended to the thighs. You notice that it didn't just say the abdomen, but also the beginning of the legs. The thighs are also of bronze, speaking of the Greek empire, because ultimately after Alexander died at 33, and they, there's different reports on how he died. We do know he died in Babylon, which I think is interesting, isn't it? But I'm sure there's some significance in that. Nebuchadnezzar died in Babylon. Probably Darius died in Babylon. Belshazzar died in Babylon. Alexander died in Babylon. There's got to be some significance. If you can figure it out, I don't know, but I'm just throwing that out there. But when he was um, 33 years old, they say, um, some reports say that he liked to drink and that he... Uh, was he just drank himself, you know, he was totally inebriated and he was started vomiting and he choked to death on his own vomit at only 33 years of age. 
But um, when he died, the aristocracy voted not to give the kingdom to his two sons, who were really pretty young anyway, but they voted in four generals. That's why it's a military aristocracy. So four generals, that's the four heads, took Alexander's place, but they warred among themselves, and it eventually turned out just to be two, two main divisions of the Greek empire, the two thighs, and that was the Seleucids of Syria, and then you had the Ptolemies of, of Egypt. And we'll be talking a whole lot more about that in the future, because out of the Seleucid Empire comes Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was a terrible dude. He was a real great picture of the coming Antichrist. Um, one of the reasons for Alexander's great victories had to do with why bronze symbolizes the Greek empire on this image. Now, if you do what the critics do and you say that the bronze symbolizes Persia, it messes up this whole thing because bronze is perfect for the Greek empire. Now, I want you to picture in your mind the dress distinction. Yes, dress. Dress distinction between the warriors, the soldiers of the second and the third empires, okay? The Medo-Persian warriors, you know how they dressed when they went out to battle? They had a soft turban on their head, doesn't really protect the head too well. They would have a tunic with sleeves, you know, flowing sleeves, and they had billowy pants, can you picture that? billowy pants on their, on their legs, and they didn't have any shields to protect them. Now, how were the Greek soldiers dressed? Well, they had a helmet of, what do you think? Brass. A helmet of brass, or bronze. It's actually bronze. A breastplate of bronze. Um, they carried in one hand a shield that practically would cover their whole body, a shield of bronze, and in the other hand, they had a bronze sword. So it's like almost no contest, is it? Um, and this is why the classic authors of ancient days refer to them as brazen-coated Greeks. And this is why I told my daughters <laughs> yesterday, they were in the Bible study, I said, this is why your Greek mother has brass faucets. They always get at me because if you go to my house, all my knobs on my cabinets and everywhere and my door handles and my faucets are all bronze. And they say, Mom, that's not cool anymore. That's out. If I wait long enough, it'll come back in, you know. But um, now it's pewter and, you know, all these other things, you know. Get with it. I said, no, this comes in my DNA. <laughs> Brass became a symbol of both Greek conquest and the Greek empire. Now, Daniel, 600 years before Christ, he would have no way of knowing any of this, would he? But God, you see, who gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel, he knew well ahead of time that the third empire of his colossal image would be associated with bronze. Just so perfect. All right, let's look quickly at the legs of iron, verse 40. And this, of course, is the Roman Empire. 
And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. All right, now, the Roman Empire, the legs of iron, is also represented in chapter 7 as this dreadful, terrible beast. I mean, that guy is really ugly, and I made him pretty ugly. Um, and he has ten horns that come out of his head. And it says his teeth are made of iron. So there's that use of iron again. And his nails, his nails on his feet are made of um, brass. I mean, he's just a dreadful, terrible guy. He also represents Rome. Why is the fourth empire represented by legs of iron? And why did Daniel's interpretation say that this kingdom would be as strong as iron and that it would break into pieces and it would subdue all things? Why? Why, why, why? Well, it's because the Romans ruled with what? A rod of iron. The Aramaic verb used for break it speaks of crushing, as with an iron hammer. The legions of Rome were known for crushing all resistance with an iron heel. Now, in Daniel's day, iron was the strongest metal that this world has, had ever known. Without argument, Rome was the strongest empire that the world had ever known. Whereas Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, lasted only about 73 years... And Medo-Persia and Greece each lasted about 200 years. The Roman Empire, you do know, was never actually conquered. No one ever conquered the Roman Empire. It merely kind of just faded away due to its own internal decay. That rhymed. And it sort of lives on. It sort of lives on through the existence of Roman law. And uh, Roman uh, government, I mean, like our system here in the United States, a republic uh, with a senate, that comes from Rome. And it, it kind of lives on through Roman thought and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and the nations, of, the nations of Europe are full of the influence of the Roman Empire. And by extension, we are, because we came out of Europe, right, from England. And even the language lives on. Although I don't know, is there anybody in here who speaks fluent Latin? <laughs> I don't think anybody really speaks fluent Latin except maybe in the Vatican um, and the Roman Catholic priests maybe, but it still lives on because it is the foundation of so many of the Romance languages. There's a lot, a lot of Latin root words in our language and in French and in Spanish, etc. Did you know, <laughs> did you know, well, how many of you know the poem Humpty Dumpty? Raise your hand. Of course you know the poem Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. You can tell I have seven grandchildren, right? Humpty Dumpty is a poem about the Roman Empire and its fall. There have been a lot of men who have tried to put little Humpty Dumpty back together again and have failed. There have been men like, well, actually it was one of the prime missions at the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church to put Rome back together. Charlemagne tried 
to put Humpty back together again, and he failed. Napoleon tried, and where did he fail? Waterloo. <laughs> um, there were many, Charles the something or other, and Philip the something or other, and Hitler, and Mussolini. Mussolini. They have all attempted to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and so far, no man has been able to do so. But one day, have you ever equated the Antichrist with Humpty Dumpty before? <laughs> That's a new thought, isn't it? <laughs> One day there will be a man who temporarily puts Humpty Dumpty back together again, but he's kind of made of iron and brittle clay and he falls apart, doesn't he? Falls all over again when the stone comes out of heaven. All right, well, that was fun. Um, I'm going to skip some stuff and go to the end. Now, I'm going to end with this, this true story. This is, this is amazing. This is amazing. Um, this is a fascinating account of true history that is given to us by the famous Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who lived in the first century. And he writes about Alexander the Great and his Greek troops coming to conquer Jerusalem. Remember his 14,000 miles of territory? Well, part of it was Judea. So when he came to Jerusalem with his troops to conquer the city and to do what he did everywhere he went, to crush the people, kill many of the people, those that resisted, probably the priests, etc., and then take over the city. When he came to the perimeter of Jerusalem, the high priest, the Jewish high priest, who was a man by the name of Jadua, J-A-D-D-U-A, a godly high priest, came forth out of the city boldly, bravely, to meet Alexander the Great. Maybe he was waving a white flag. And he invited Alexander into the city, and he showed him the temple there. And something more important that he showed Alexander was a copy of the scrolls of the book of Daniel. And of course, he couldn't read Hebrew, but he explained, he read to Alexander, pointed out to him that this prophet who had lived in the sixth century, like 330 years before Alexander, had predicted that the kingdom to follow the Medes and the Persians was represented by bronze and was represented by a he-goat, and was represented by a leopard with four wings, swiftly indicating that he would swiftly conquer the world. And Jadua, the high priest, explained to Alexander that this was written by the Most High God, who alone could tell the future. Alexander, Josephus tells us, was so very impressed with this that he went and worshipped at the temple, the Jewish temple, and even offered a sacrifice there. Now, that doesn't mean he converted to the true God because he believed in many gods, but he was willing to offer a sacrifice to this Jewish God. And it's said that he even bowed himself before the high priest. And one of his, when one of his generals asked him, why are you doing that, Alexander? He should be bowing before you. People bow before you. You don't bow before them. Alexander said it was not before him that I prostrated myself, but the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. And guess what? 
he left the city intact. He left the temple intact. He left the people intact. He left the city in peace. And that is history. Okay, now here's the question. How could Jadua, the high priest, have shown Alexander the Great a copy of the book of Daniel if it wasn't, as the critics say, even to be written for another 160 years? Ha! Take that, you high critics! Uh, I love it. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. I know this was a difficult lesson, but thank you for their hunger to know you. Thank you for how interesting history is when we see it in light of you, because you're in control of all of it. It is your story. History is his story, and it becomes alive and just so thrilling. Thank you for teaching me that. Thank you again for your sovereignty, and thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't have to believe the critics. We know that this is your book, and you can tell the end from the beginning any old time you want to. Thank you for using your servant, Daniel, and please, Lord, continue to use every one of us in this room, and I pray we all have a personal relationship with your son, and we'll spend eternity with you in your presence. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.